Follow me, some people own stocks. Welcome to Playing Footsie, the podcast where we talk about stocks, investing, and personal finance. Before we start, we want to make it clear that the information presented on this show is for informational and entertainment purposes only. None of us is a financial advisor, and this is not financial advice. Investing in the stock market comes with risks, and we strongly encourage our listeners to do their own research and consult with a licensed financial advisor before making any investment decisions. Now, let's dive into the world of finance and talk about what we're doing with our money. The sucker's going up. Welcome to the Playing Fancy Show. I'm Steve W. I'm here with Steve D. It's the end of another week, so we're here to talk about things that have been happening. Things like things that have been happening in the stock market, things have been happening on cricket pitches, and things have been happening on the internet, but not necessarily in that order. It's uh, quite warm here at the moment. It's been quite a warm week. Steve, how's your week been? Uh, warm, I think, is how I would describe it as well, Steve. It's been a, it's been a busy week. I've uh, I've actually... Uh, not set foot in the office until yesterday afternoon. I've had a very busy week. So Monday I was I was working from home, so I suppose that does count. But Tuesday I got sent out to uh, a job about an hour and a bit, and a bit away, uh, and I went down to it, had about an hour meeting with people on site, and then I got the phone call from, you know, your colleague at work who says, look, you, you, you're very close to this one. It's just in Lincoln. You're you're in Louth. You're, you're less than an hour away. Could, could you just pop there? I was like, yeah, sure. No worries. While I'm over here, I will pop there. Um, and it turned out by uh, what he meant by Lincoln was Nottingham. Uh, so I was an hour and 10 away from where I was. <laughs> Uh, and I got there, uh, my car was out of charge, I had to charge, and then I was driving home, and it was just one of those things where you think, well, I'm getting home at half past four, I'm not going back to the office, they can, oh, look at that, I'm, I'm going home. So I did, I went straight home, Steve, I had Wednesday, Thursday off, and then Friday, I was back out again, um, all the way down into Scampton, which is a famous uh, airfield, but I was uh, just outside of Scampton. And uh, didn't get back till after lunch. Thankfully, all of my colleagues had done none of my work. So I was faced with eight things I needed to do. Uh, it, it basically that needed to be made next week. And see if I only got three of them done because in the middle of it, I built an office chair because I was that bored of my work. Uh, so I've had a terrible week. I'm so far behind. Uh, roll on Monday. How about you? Interesting. I'm glad you told me about how famous Scampton was because otherwise I wouldn't have known. But um, uh, it's been a, a kind of different week here. I have loads of stuff that I haven't done yet. None of it is like urgent this week urgent. So uh, I'm not super worried yet, but it's going to go from a point of being none of this stuff is urgent to all of this stuff is urgent really quite quickly. So I'm trying to keep chipping away and staying on top of things uh, at the moment. Um, Alistair started nursery this week. Uh, he went for his, uh, not his actual start, his like settling in start that they have. And that went... Uh, a combination of really, really well and really, really badly. Uh, so we were supposed to go in between Tuesday and Friday for the Tuesday. Uh, the idea is that one of us, me in this case, goes in and stays with him for the session and gets used to the place and sees what there is and uh, hopefully has a nice time and so on. And then gradually, gradually, we work towards leaving him there for longer and longer, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, Friday. So we went in on the Tuesday um, and Alistair, was, he was shy for about three seconds uh, and then he saw a ball pull and then he saw everything else toys that he's quite familiar with. And he was off and he'd never looked back for about an hour or so. And that was terrific. Uh, I didn't leave. I stayed there. But he uh, and maybe he knew I was there. Maybe not. But he had a lovely time anyway. Wednesday to Friday, his key worker has been off sick. So we haven't been back yet. So we're going to try the settling in thing again next week. Uh, that means that I've done quite a bit more childcare than I meant to. But that's been quite nice. It's been 
that time in the mornings when we were uh, going is when it's not been like unmanageably hot. So we've been able to go outside and go to the park and that kind of thing and then try and work out what to do within between uh, the hours of sort of 12 and 3 or so when I'm not taking them outside in this. Uh, but generally pretty good uh, week here. It's uh, I suppose we should just get straight to the stuff that we're, we're wrong about again. Um, we were discussing last week in the cricket about how uh, England were casually destroying New Zealand. This New Zealand team doesn't look so so hot. We'd won the first two T20s in that series by a country mile and a slightly bigger country mile. Uh, wondering whether wondering whether rain might save New Zealand for one of them and avoid a complete series whitewash. Anyway, for those who don't know, England were thumped by New Zealand in both the last two T20s and have lost the first of the one-day internationals by really quite a long way, about eight wickets, to be honest. And New Zealand's batting second chased fairly comfortably, actually, by the look of it, uh, in yesterday's match. Uh, how's how's you feeling about Yorkshire against New Zealand now, Steve? Yeah, it's a bit different, isn't it, at the moment? <laughs> it's, Is uh, it all it's because not... they left out Harry Brook? It's uh, well, Harry Brook. Uh, he opened, didn't? Uh, was it Harry Brook? Did Harry Brook open yesterday? Oh, sorry. Yeah, he's out on the World Cup squad, isn't he? Yeah, he's out on the World uh, Cup Stokes squad. Stokes coming back in. Yeah. Yeah, I. Uh, uh, I think yeah. <laughs> he was a bit. <laughs> unimpressed with that New Zealand side and then all of a sudden we've just realised that they're actually quite an impressive side they're just a little bit out of form at the beginning of the T20s maybe um, yeah they look uh, well they looked really good yesterday and they scored really quickly as well which when you're chasing a, a total of nearly 300 that that's a big total that's a big daunting total that to get in a one day international Steve it's, I think that's very rarely chased down and to do it with just two wickets on the board is is really, really impressive. But it's hard to find a bowler, Steve, down that list of um, uh, England um, bowlers that you're you're interested in, you know, that you're happy with. I mean, Wokes bowling at 3.86 is the best of the bunch, but Rashid nearly nine, Topley eight, Rue, Atkinson and Livingston all over six, uh, Willie just under six. Uh, it's not great, is it? That's all runner ball stuff and more. Um so, yeah, but, I mean, looking at New Zealand um, in 111 of 121 strike rate, 91, 118 of 91 strike rate, 129. This isn't master blasting either. It was just a nice, calm, controlled chase, and uh, we were we were resoundly beaten. So I think we should stop making predictions about anything, Steve, because I don't think we've ever been right about anything ever, especially since we started talking about cricket. Yeah, we'll come back to things that uh, we're specifically I wrong about uh, in a couple of minutes' time, but... It becomes hard to see how England win one of these one-day international smears, doesn't it, Steve? Yeah, we're going to lose them all, Steve. Um, I'm not even sure how many of them there are. There's got to be another couple, right? Yeah, we've got to be one of the worst one-day sides going, so let's just keep losing uh, and and we'll see how we go. Can't help but think this coach is some sort of agent from Australia who's uh, come over. I was very unconvinced by that hire, by the way. Uh, so he'd been terrifically successful with the Australian women's team. The Australian women's squad is better than any other squad, and it's not really close. Uh, England are the only... Uh, they're pretty much an island in second place, to be honest, behind the Australians and ahead of everybody else. But um, unless you kind of trip over uh, in somewhere in a knockout stage or something really weird happens, that Australian women's team wins everything, kind of regardless of who their coach is. They probably don't really need one. They could probably save some money by not having a coach. Just pitch up and uh, play like you know, like people do around the country on on Saturday afternoons. It was nice to see Flintoff out and about there. Uh, he does look like he is uh, quite scared though. It looks like he's he's taking some serious damage. He's he been does, really quiet yeah. on that. Yeah, you, you hear about the Top Gear fellas being in a crash, and you always think, well, they're always in a crash, and you always seem to come up with all right. But 
but Flintoff looks like he's been quite badly scared by it. He does look like he's taken a few, yeah, thumps around the uh, the kind of face area, which, um, yeah, good to see him out and about again. That got quite a bit of uh, news coverage. Um, I wonder whether he's he's a, a kind of Lancastrian uh, guy. I think Manchester sort of originally rather than Liverpool or something, but um, maybe he's the reason that this kind of otherwise purely Yorkshire outfit has been misfiring for the last um, week and a half or so, or a week basically. Could be, Steve, could be. Okay, um, enough about ex- exciting things in our week and how poorly the England cricket team has been doing. Uh, wait till Paul, I was going to say wait till Paul gets back for this, but don't, don't, don't like, wait in expectation or anything. Um, when he comes back and says, oh, hang on, it's the cricket segment. Paul, do you want to start us off? Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, we've got a new thing to talk about this week. Uh, Steve asked me in the week whether I'd like to talk about things that we've consumed this week. And at the time, my initial reaction was, yeah, actually, I've just tried this new meal pack thing, uh, and it comes with a really good four-ingredient casserole, which I'm I'm making again, to be honest with you, because it's uh, it's not game-changing, but it's better than I was expecting, and it's pretty straightforward. But that's not what Steve meant. He didn't mean things I've been consuming. We can talk about things we've consumed consuming most weeks, actually. Uh, Steve, you had something different in mind. What did you have in mind to talk about here? Uh, well, just really because Steve and I, co- we consume a lot of podcasts and uh, videos and uh, articles. And um, if there was something that had come up that we really, really liked the look of or we really liked the sound of or we really enjoyed, uh, just something that we could share with um, with you guys for, you know, for a bit of bit of follow on follow on listing. So there's, <clears throat> there's two things that I've got this week and then there's a third thing. So I'll, I'll let Steve jump in after by two. And then there's a third thing that I just thought was really, really clever. And we'll we'll see what you guys think. But uh, Rational Reminder Podcast, Steve, with Ben Felix, uh, episode number 267, The Expected Cost of Pessimism. Uh, it's a very, very, very good episode, packed with facts uh, uh, and um, and talk from Ben. And it has a really good interview on storytelling at the end of it, which uh, might be something that you, you guys really enjoy. I enjoyed it. I've actually listened to the first half of it twice. Uh, I enjoyed it that much, so um, I would definitely recommend that. Again, we'll put all of these in the description, so uh, don't be uh, you know running around for pen and paper. The other one is YouTube channel James Jani, J-A-N-I. He's put a video out called The Fake Genius, which is about Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX collapse. Now, even if you're not into crypto or any of that kind of stuff, it's a really, really entertaining dive into the whole saga. It's packed with facts and interviews with people, and uh, it's a really high-quality production. It looks like something Netflix would have put out. So, yeah, I enjoyed both of those things uh, a lot. I'll put them both in the description, and let us know what you think if you if you do get around to watching them. Interesting stuff. Uh, my thing that I've been consuming this week that mostly stood out to me is a video from a channel called Wall Street Millennial. Uh, I think his name is Ryan, although he doesn't really advertise his name, just mostly goes by Wall Street Millennial. Um, and what the channel usually does is makes a series of kind of informative videos explaining why things are rubbish. Uh, and mostly the things he explains why they're rubbish are things like crypto uh, or Sam Bankman-Fried or anything Kathy Wood has invested in. Um, or all these kind of loss-making things and how they're busy losing money. And even if they pretend to be profitable, uh, they're not really or not in a way that you would recognize. And I find this thing good for two reasons. One is it's a really informative channel, usually. And the second is it's really nicely presented. It puts things in ways that I can understand, even without much of a kind of commercial background, but from a sort of fairly thoughtful uh, background, I guess. So 
the recent video I was looking at this week appears to be on a theme that oh, loads of stuff seems to be on at the moment, which is the kind of struggle, which we might talk about in future, but not today, between Disney and uh, Charter Communications, uh, to do with Disney taking its ESPN stuff off of Charter. If you, like me, have thought this Charter stuff is kind of confusing and I'm not exactly sure how all this is supposed to work, it's really good, this video. It goes from the beginning. It tells you it's title is something like Disney's media empire is crumbling, which is a little bit uh, clickbaity, but he's dubious on that side of uh, Disney's business, mostly because he has a fairly strong bias, maybe, maybe a justifiable bias, but uh, a strong dislike, I guess, for loss-making enterprises. Uh, and that is things like EVs, things like crypto, things like um, Disney streaming activities at the moment, um, and suggesting various interesting thoughts about that. Uh, when we do come to talk about this, I will probably steal large amounts of this and present it as my own information. I won't just uh, read it out to you. I'll try and make sure I add something in over the top of it. But that's uh, where I've been looking this week. It's where I look a lot of weeks, actually. But um, it's actually quite good if you like global fraud uh, like or collapsed billionaires in various different countries, including this one. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's my thing I've been consuming. That I've been having a look at. Very nice. One of the other things we've spotted then, uh, and this one I think is uh, special congratulations to Monzo for cracking this, because I think this is probably uh, one of the best solutions that I've seen for this problem. So uh, for those of you with um, uh, parents or, or grandparents who uh, regularly get scam calls or you worry about them regularly getting scam calls, uh, Monzo have uh, essentially invented a way of telling them whether or not it is actually genuinely Monzo on the phone uh, with just a couple of clicks of a button. So if you've got the Monzo app at the moment and you head to settings, which is your profile picture in the top corner, and you click on privacy and security, there's a new button there that just says, we're not talking to you. Uh, and all that says there is that will update if Monza have genuinely phoned you for any reason, that will update to say it is us talking to you. You know, we are making this call. And then this time you, you genuinely know that, you know, it is Monza that are, you know, that are in communication with you and you're not just, uh, you're not just getting scammed. Um, and there is rise of this uh, level of fraud, fraud um, in the UK at the moment. It's, it's, it is growing. It's uh, basically involves somebody ringing up and saying your account has been compromised. We need you to move it to another account uh, while we catch the crims that are uh, operating in your account. And obviously, none of that's true. You move it to a, a, a Monzo account in someone else's name, or a Revolut account in someone's name, or sometimes they even set up a Revolut account with you on the phone in your name. But obviously. They get the details, and uh, then they run off with um, you know, with all your loved ones' monies. So a really uh, important update from Monzo. They've cracked that. That needs to be in every app, uh, every banking app up and down the country. And uh, yeah, you should push your banks for it if they don't have it. Uh, it's a very simple feature, and uh, yeah, I think they just deserve a, a lot of praise for it. It is a very simple feature. It's an unusual one in that with Monzo, I have been opposed to, I think, almost every feature they have introduced at the time they've introduced it. Quite a few of them have uh, come round uh, for me a little bit. I was, I felt like I didn't really want or need uh, POTS when they introduced POTS. I thought, eh, I, I can probably sort of count uh, money that's in my account. And I could probably live without POTS at the moment, but I do use them, especially in the joint account, actually. Uh, this, though, is a feature that I think is great from the outset. It's quite a rare feature, uh, that from Monzo. I was first kind of drawn to the platform, I suppose, uh, or the interface, because it was really quite simple, really quite basic, and really quite minimalistic. It didn't have loads of stuff to be prodding everywhere. It's just put your damn money here, and you can see it. Uh, and that'll pretty much do. 
and they've developed a lot since then, um, some of which I was unconvinced by at the time, but I'm more convinced by now. This seems like a really good thing, um, just from the get-go. Uh, I like that very much. Yeah, my only criticism would be it's a little bit too hidden. I would like that to be on mm-hmm. the home screen somewhere, um, somewhere where, you know... Uh, uh, if my mother had Monzo, she'd never find this button. She'd probably have to put the phone down on the scammers to ring me to ask me where it is. Um, but I think this needs front and center in the app. You know, somewhere, somewhere in the middle of the home feed. Uh, you just, you know, we're not talking to you right now. That would be. I mean, it does. I suppose we're not talking to you right now. Sounds a bit kind of like uh, if you don't understand the context. <laughs> it sounds uh, I quite like, like that. Them, I, but... I quite like that. I mean, yeah, they, yeah. Okay, so they might think they've locked, you've locked your account or something. Yeah, but, yeah. Right, yeah. we're not talking to you. Good luck. Yeah, we're money not talking to you right now. Yeah, you've upset us. Mm. Um, no, I, I kind of like that as a sort of uh, tongue-in-cheek at the moment thing. But um, yeah, a little bit hidden. I, I imagine it will make its way onto the uh, main part of it. Sooner or later? Yeah, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? I think this is maybe a, a little bit of a proof of concept for them, but it's a really important feature and it needs to be in a better place. Mm. Uh, just one last thing on the consumption thing. Obviously, most of what I consume uh, tends to be things that Steve has written on the Trading 212 forum because uh, they appear on my screen in my push notifications and I keep thinking, oh, I've got a dividend. No, I haven't. It's just Steve posting something again. Um, but uh, Steve, have you posted anything any good this week on the Trading 212 uh, chat forum thingy? I have, yes. So I posted a thread on Trading 212, Steve, uh, about savings rates. And it was the author of the brilliant book, Just Keep Buying. I think I've recommended it before, but I'm going to put it in the uh, uh, a link in the description um, because we'll get a, a, an, an affiliate kickback from that. Thanks to, uh, I think it's Hayden, although we want to call you Hadjan, and uh, Peter Pepper for the suggestion. But anyway, Nick said, and um, you'll notice that this was on our community as well, and 43% of you got it right. So uh, but let's see how you get on this tab. If you increase your savings rates from 5% to 10%, you can retire seven years earlier. However, if you increase it from 50% to 55%, you only gain one extra year of retirement. So a friend of the show, Anathema, who's third mentioned in two shows, who we now know does watch the show because <laughs> he did reach out to me to tell me that he does, uh, pointed out that this was a pretty obvious thing because one is doubling your contributions and the other is merely adding 10%. However, I tried to point out that this one has a bit of a double meaning uh, in that the doubling to 10 is great, but for one year earlier, and depending on your worldview, I guess, you might be better not increasing that amount to 50 to 55 and spending it on enjoying your life. But... Regardless, friend of the show, Jamie UK123, misunderstood the question and gave us the return number of his portfolio of 4.5% before hastily realizing his mistake uh, and corrected it to about a 30% savings rate. He said that he would love to be mentioned on the podcast, but hoped this wouldn't be his debut moment. I promised him, Steve, that I wouldn't mention it. So let's uh, get on with the show. Fair enough. Uh, tough times for Jamie, what was it, 123UK or UK123? Jamie123UK, one of those. Um, never mind. Better things will come, Jamie. Numbers, countries, way uh, in the future. But yeah, that's. I think that's a good and interesting point. It reminds me of something, by the way, that I saw. Uh, nothing to do with savings rates when lockdown one kind of started. Uh, someone pointed out that with their example was Domino's, but you can pick your favourite kind of uh, pizza. Um, on a medium, you get whatever it is, eight slices or something. On a large, you get something like twelve slices. But it's not just an extra four slices. The slices are all bigger, so worth noting that, uh, yeah, a large is kind of that much significantly bigger than a uh, medium. It's not just a matter of kind of counting up um, 
slices here in much the same ways. It's not just a case of counting up instrument, incremental percentage points here uh, that you add on from, uh, uh, yeah, one up to two or to five up to ten or, or 50 up to Yeah, that's five. right. Uh, and a lot of people did get tripped up by that. So I'll just mm-hmm. tell you quickly because I've got it open. Um, so uh, people said that one year earlier, it was actually 58%, Steve. I undersold that, undersold you uh, you guys here. But three years earlier was 8%, five years earlier was 5%, and seven years earlier was 30%. So there was a number of people who were falling for the, you know, the, the information earlier in the statement, um, which I suppose when you, before you think about it properly, uh, you're thinking it's just a five percent increase on both, then it potentially could be uh, seven and seven, but but it's not in this case. So um, yeah, I think it's a really important little thing. And if you guys like this in the community, please let us know because we can post these sort of things all the time. I, I stumble across these kind of interesting uh, uh, little maths tricks all the time, and uh, I'm happy to post them up if you guys want to keep playing the game. Mm. Okay, uh, so enough from Jamie thingy thingy's blunder. Uh, let's talk about something I got wrong instead for the moment then. Um, wind back to the middle of the year for me for the moment. So end of June, start of July, and other friend of the show, uh, Jacob from JKR Investing, is looking for people to uh, play his game, I think, till the end of the year. Pick a stock um, you have until, uh, from I think July 1st to December 31st, basically open July 31st, close December 31st, uh, to see how much it goes up. Uh, stock that goes up the most wins. Um, stocks that don't go up the most. Uh, there's a cash prize, I think, in it. If people pick the same stock, I believe it's shared. There are no prizes for anything other than first place, I think, is uh, the rule. And uh, that is important. And we'll come back to why in just a second, actually. Um, but my stock, I've pretty much secured last place, I think, on uh, this one. Um my stock I chose was a company called Synthoma. At the midpoint of the year, it was 72p.9, uh, just under 73p. Uh, and that was down around 50% from the start of the year. And I kind of sketched out some reasons why that we'll come back to in a moment or so. Anyway, now it's down at 46.75p, uh, which is around 35% down from where it was, which means I've almost certainly, I think, secured last place unless someone goes bankrupt. And one thing I guess I would point out in my defense here, just to return to that previous point here, I think I said at the time, uh, there are no prizes for anything other than first. I'm not interested in coming second here, or I'm not interested in coming above average, or I'm not interested in beating the market. Um, If this thing doesn't double, it might as well go to zero uh, for me in this situation. But anyway, that takes it to its losses to 91% over the last two years, making it the worst performing FTSE 250 stock. Um, and it's down again this week because it announced its earnings report and they're down another 25% following that, which was the close of Wednesday. But you're supposed to watch the business, not the stock. Uh, so, Steve, do you know what's been going on with the business? I'll tell you. It's going horribly. Uh, EBITDA, uh, which is how they measure profitability, and I'll come back to why we're measuring it in EBITDA in a moment, is down 55%. So that takes us down to £72 million for the first six months of this year. It's a half-year report, by the way. Um, Mostly due to the fact that there's excess inventory in their end markets. What they do is make chemicals. Those chemicals are used in a number of things, but most significantly in this case, surgical gloves, medical gloves, that kind of stuff. And there's huge excess inventory still left over from COVID, so demand is through the floor. So profits are falling. Um, fair enough. Uh, profits went up a lot during the COVID thing. They come down a lot after the COVID thing as inventory backlogs wear off. Blah, 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 cyclical this, that, the other. You would expect these things to go up. You expect these things to come down, especially in this kind of macroeconomic environment. 
That's clearly a short-term headwind. This will normalize. We're not at the case where the world is never going to use another surgical glove or that they won't be made from the stuff that sometimes chemicals are uh, used in. This is all fine. So why the hell is the share price below its 2009 levels, like rather than back at its, I don't know, 2017 levels or something, because we're having a bad year? Uh, the answer is fairly straightforward. It's debt. Um, Synthoma had a big booming period in 2021 that um, we'll we'll talk about in just a moment. But over the last first last six months, uh, first half of the year, they have sold off two of their businesses to bring down their net debt. Uh, their net debt has come down from roughly just under a billion to about 700, between 700 million and 800 million. And that's good. It's quite a lot with a market cap of 218 million. But their debt's coming down. Uh, and so, therefore, this should be another good thing about them, right? Less debt, okay, cyclical headwind earnings. But there's a bit of a problem here. 700 and, well, 790-ish uh, million in debt on 72 million in EBITDA puts them at five and a half times EBITDA for net debt. And that's a problem. The reason that's a problem is because their debt covenants require them to stay below 4.25 times EBITDA. And even 4.25 times is a concession. It was supposed to be um, three and a bit, uh, but that got raised to 4.25 because they ran into some tough headwinds at the start at the end of last year, actually. So now they have a big problem. And what they need to sort that problem out is cash. They have to get their net debt to EBITDA ratio down. Um, and essentially, they've been bringing down their debt, but their earnings have been falling faster, which puts them into covenant breach. Uh, and they need cash, and they've gone for cash pretty much the only way you can go for cash if you're busy selling off your operations and you're not raising cash fast enough. Uh, and the reason is to try and service debt or to get your debt covenants back in order, you have to go look to your shareholders. And they are attempting to have a 276, or they have succeeded, by the way, in having a 276 million rights issue off their shareholders. 276 million on a stock with a market cap of about 218. So they've raised more than their entire market cap in. Um, dilution, effectively. And dilution is big. It's kind of complicated, but they're having a one for 20 reverse split. So 20 shares will go into one. And after that, they are issuing six new shares for every one, or rights to six new shares for every one offered. It's all underwritten, so they will get cash out of it. But the price is horrific. It's something like an 82% discount from Wednesday's closing price, which is massive and the reason the stock is going through the floor. Um, Steve, is this a reason people should start worrying more about whether their companies owe any money or not? Uh, well, I was just going to say, Steve, if JKR's spreadsheet can't cope with the one for 20 reverse split, <laughs> you're going to be uh, right at the very top. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that that would be really nice. Let's hope. Let's, that let's would be good, for, wouldn't it? I just need some slightly glitchy software from let's, JKR. <laughs> let's, hope for, let's hope for technical inadequacy, and you're right mm -hmm. at the top. Um, yeah, I think, look, uh, this is something that could have happened. We knew this all along, and you knew this when you picked it, Steve. You were looking at a company that had a, a big old pile of debt and had come down an awful long way, and you were sort of worried at the time. Well, you were thinking this might be um, this might be the point that it turns around, probably one of those where you maybe thought it might not go lower from here, and uh, unfortunately, uh, it, it has. Um, I mean, this is a company with a 200 million market cap with uh, – with a hell of a lot more than that just in revenue alone, Steve. Yeah, it doesn't turn that into profit, but you would assume eventually it does once it can sort out its inventories and, and start, uh, you know, start managing its inventories a lot better. I think this is a, a pretty, it's a pretty interesting stock here, Steve, but would you, is this where you buy it? I don't, I don't know. I think it's, 
it's probably one of those that I stick on my too hard pal because of the corporate actions, I think, because of not really understanding the, the, the sort of life cycle of it. But it does feel to me like we're not, you know, yeah, it does feel to me like it's priced incorrectly. You know, it's priced to go bust. And I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, it's priced arguably, I mean, before it was arguably priced to demand more cash out of shareholders, which is, we think about the worst case scenario as a thing going bust. The worst case scenario is arguably the thing needs you to pay them uh, to stay afloat. I mean, here's, I guess, my thought on kind of what comes next for this. I don't own this with kind of real money. I wasn't bold enough to kind of climb into it. Um, and I thought that I might live to regret that, to be honest. But uh, it is just my JKR kind of fantasy game pick thing for... I'm not picking Berkshire Hathaway because I don't think it's going to win. Uh, I picked Synthoma because I don't care if I come last if I, as much as second. At this point in time, so think back a little bit for the moment then. I got a little bit more here. I mean, we got into this mess because uh, they went acquiring businesses during the pandemic. And things went really started booming for them in the pandemic, right? So earnings per share were 1p in 2020 and they were 48p in 2021. Um, and that's, that's growthy stuff. And Synthoma are not entirely, entirely uh, stupid. So they went off acquiring businesses with some of this and used it to try and stick themselves on a long-term better uh, footing. And they made these acquisitions, two of them, which I'll say more about at the very end, uh, using three things, partly their own cash that they had lying around, fair enough, partly their stock, which at the time was uh, you know, higher than it is now by uh, a factor of loads. So, okay, don't mind you using your stock to fund acquisitions when the stock's expensive. That's kind of sensible. And they also used debt. Debt was cheap at the time, which kind of makes sense. But the trouble is their earnings have been coming down and they've bumped up against their kind of covenant stuff. So here's how I suppose I'm sort of thinking about this. They have a rights issue and that's done. That should put them on a more solid footing. I think it only brings them down to about 3.8 times EBITDA. So they need their EBITDA to start growing soon or some more sales to go through. They are in the process of selling off uh, a few more things but there's still a risk of i guess further dilution if that loses if they lose even more kind of pace out here um the things they bought are interesting so they bought omnova which is one of their competitors basically they spent 660 million buying that in the combination of cash debt and stock uh, and they also bought an adhesive resins business from a company called eastman in the us which cost them around 760 million that's about 1.3 billion in bought stuff kind of right there uh, their market cap is 218-ish uh, million. Their net debt, add that on, because that's the reason the market cap's so low, is just under 800. Maybe we'll call it 800 for ease. It's close to about a billion or so in um, uh, enterprise value, I guess, or, or stuff that you have to pay out. 1.3 and stuff that you acquired it does kind of look increasingly like a mispricing a little bit. I mean, they're selling off some of their other units, but even if you just think of the stuff they've acquired for the time being, as long as they can get themselves through the sort of short-term thing, I'm not sure that I think they could be uh, kind of interesting here. The, the issue isn't that they can't make money, it's they can't make it fast enough to deal with their debt, I think is the way to summarise it with these guys. Yeah, and that's a, that's a problem, isn't it? I think the the debt's only going to get worse for them as well, so they're going to need to try and work their way through that. I think perhaps a little bit of exuberance, uh, pandemic exuberance, maybe they thought this was going to last a little bit longer and they'd be able to, mm. you know, uh, maybe take debt on, but only take it on for a short term. Um, 
perhaps I was just looking for mine, Steve. I can't remember when the uh, the video was actually done. If it was six months ago, I'm up about thirty six and a half percent. If it was three months ago, I'm absolutely flat. So um, I think you might be flat, which is significantly better than me here. Yeah. So um, I mean, I'll t- I'll take flat uh, at the moment. Um, flat might win. I mean, it's just <laughs> JKR competing against here, right? Flat might win. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be like that. He'll make a video about us. Uh, he might do. Uh, no, I like your channel very much. Uh, and yeah, you know, he, I don't think he's had anything lose as badly as mine does here. Um, but when this thing was at £5 something, I wonder whether they are regretting now not just financing it with more stock because, you know, their stock was at an all-time high. Um, it was clearly not a bargain at that level because COVID was clearly a temporary thing, albeit uh, a temporary thing of unspecified duration. Uh, so I, yeah, I kind of reckon they probably ought to have not gone for the debt approach. I understand why they did it. That wasn't expensive in 2021, uh, but it's bumping into trouble now. It feels short-sighted, doesn't it? But it's one of those things I think we discussed last week when we said in hindsight, it looks really Mm. short-sighted, but if they thought that they were just going to have, you know, continued great earnings, um, you know, maybe, maybe they thought they would, uh, Debt would be the better, cheaper option. It's proven not to be the case. No, it's not. It's kind of in my too hard pile. It's sort of in a pile that's labelled. I think this is probably a decent thing to buy, but I don't think it's the most obviously best thing to buy. Um, if for some reason I wasn't allowed to buy uh, like five other things that I'd probably rather buy than this, would I have a problem owning this? No. Um, do I want to go out and buy it when I could buy more things that I own that are all down at the moment anyway? Uh, also, not really. I mean, Disney's a good example uh, at the moment, to be honest. Do I like this better than Disney? Not really. Uh, do I think it's intrinsically uh, underpriced here? Yep, pretty much. But uh, I'm keeping an eye on this one. I mean, another <laughs> another 35% move to the downside, I'm probably going to find this too hard to resist. But we will see. I mean, Greedy when others are fearful. People are fearful here, and it's not like there's no reason for them being fearful. I wonder whether these are the dark clouds you can see through or whether these are just dark clouds for the moment, because I'm wrong on this one before, which is sort of putting me off uh, for the time being. Anyway, Steve, uh, should we talk about things people actually want us to talk about rather than just me making people feel good about how wrong I am about things? Before we move on, a quick one from Steve and me. If you're enjoying the show, please do give us a like, a comment, and a rating on whatever platform you're listening on. And make sure you share the podcast with your investing friends. It helps us a lot, and we're really looking forward to building out something that you guys can get some value from and that we can have some fun in making. So do like, subscribe, and back on with the show. The sucker's going up. Let's do it. Cool. What have you been looking at? Uh, well, at the request of Sammy128k and Matt on um, Spotify, sorry, Matt, last week wasn't your favourite show, but I, I will take a look at UiPath for you. You, you both requested it, and uh, it's it, a fairly interesting company that um, Steve and I know about from their F1, which uh, I corrected Steve uh, last week on and said it was an S1, but it's an F1 because it's a foreign listing um, version of a. Uh, oh, sorry, Steve. Um, but here's a fun fact for you, Steve, uh, although I, I haven't actually verified it, so I don't know if it's a fact. It's one of those Trump facts. Um, but I think this is the only Romanian company listed in the US, but you can feel free to hit me up in the comments section if I'm um, wrong. It must be a uh, Romanian utility company or something. Something that I carry on. 
So I, t- I tried to dumb it down for people who don't know what UiPath is, which is P-A-T-H is the, is the ticker. But it, I guess it's basically a macro tool if you've ever used that in Excel. So it turns uh, simple company operations into one-click buttons. So when this company listed on the NASDAQ, it was growing like an absolute weed. And it had uh, metrics like I'd never seen before. And I quite liked it, Steve, but I, I just didn't get over the line on it. I think I traded it for a kebab on the day. Uh, remember when we used to do that? Um, but uh, it's down about 76% uh, since then. So did I dodge a bullet or is this market mispricing? Let's take a look. So revenue came in at 287 million. That was up 19%. Operating income uh, was about 30 million, up 370%. Adjusted EPS was 9 cents. uh, That was up 550%. A bit of a worrying trend on adjusted op margin, which got as high as 20%, but has now slipped back to around 10%, which is not great to see on something that they're already adjusting to make it look better. Uh, Dabna, uh, that's dollar-based net retention rate, was still at 120%, which means that essentially they're getting 20% out of their existing customers every year. Uh, 254 customers spending over a million in ARR, that's up about 30%. Uh, 44 million of net free cash flow, about 187 million in stock-based comps, Steve, which is down from 189 million last quarter, but it's still 65% of revenue. And they've got no debt, not a penny. Uh, Guidance, so for the next quarter, UiPath expected revenue in the range of 313 to 318 million uh, versus estimates of 315.33, so somewhere around the middle. Uh, for full year 2024, UiPath expect revenue of 1.273 billion to 1.278 billion versus estimates of 1.27 billion. So a little bit lower on the midpoint. They also announced, Steve, they're going to do a 500 million stock repurchase program. And this is about a $10 billion company. So that's a sizable chunk. They have about 1.1 billion uh, in cash and cash equivalents. So you have to assume it's coming out of that. Um, but they did announce 1.8 billion in their press release, uh, which is not strictly true. There's about 700 million of that is in marketable securities, which are not really as liquid as they suggest, although it's very difficult to find out what exactly they are. Uh, I did a little bit of digging around, Steve, just a little bit. This is positioned by Gartner as a leader in the uh, magic quadrant for robotic process automation. And uh, I I don't know what else is in that quadrant, to be honest with you. It does sound like a very narrow quadrant. Um, (laughs) It's announced a partnership with Peroton to, um, and that's not for your um, allergies, uh, to expand cloud-based automation in U.S. intelligence, defense, and federal civilian sectors. So that's an important little contract for them there. And um, I just noticed that Brian Stoffel tweeted out that he thinks Microsoft will acquire this one within the next 10 years. Is that something you think could happen, Steve? That surprises me. Um, I, I don't mind the idea of them as a, well, they're bumping up against the level and I get the, the stock is down quite significantly. And maybe that's part of the thinking here. But they have a market cap of around 10 and a bit billion between 10 and 11. It's quite a big effort to, to take them out by an acquisition. I mean, it's not impossible for a company like Microsoft, but sort of, I don't know, maybe you'd have to pay 15 20% premium to try and buy the thing outright from the stock market. So you're looking at uh, 11 $12 billion. That's That's not a small kind of acquisition. Um, it didn't obviously strike me as a Microsoft-y uh, type thing. I don't associate Microsoft as being a particularly robotics-ish type. Um, 
company. I get that they're a, a kind of software um, organization, and, and that might be true. But uh, yeah, it didn't particularly seem like it was uh, um, a strong candidate for that to me. That buyback looks interesting, though. I mean, that's that's going to go some way towards offsetting all this stock-based comp they have, uh, I guess, because at the moment they are printing shares quite enthusiastically. And I guess there's a good argument that says, look, if you're busy issuing shares at that rate, you didn't ought to be uh, taking on debt on top of it. And so, but they're in a good position to do that. They have cash available. They can use, as you say, some of it for a buyback. They're not massively profitable. So I guess that's where most of it's kind of uh, coming from. But yeah, interesting company, interesting sector, I guess. I don't know this space terribly well, so I sort of wonder what the competition looks like. But it does look as though once you kind of get in there on this sort of thing, you're, um, you can be well away. Well, there is a, de- a decent chunk uh, at IPO, and I think they've not. Um, it's not dwindled away at the kind of rate that people thought it would. Um, a 500 million buyback is interesting, Steve, but I mean, even if you just annualize the stock based compensation figures, we're more like 800 million in stock based comp. So we're only offsetting a, a portion of it. Mm. Um, but it's still it's still good. They've got the cash hanging around uh, 600 million for a company of this kind of size. It's actually generating free cash flow. That's not a, a, a huge, a, a huge problem for them. I mean, you'd be a bit sort of reticent to see it like you were with somebody like Unity, who were who are not generating very much money and tend to be losing money and have a terrible CEO, um, them making buybacks is a little bit, a little bit tricky for you because you think, well, where is this coming from? Do you know what I mean? Where, where, why, why are we doing this? We're not really self-sufficient yet, and you're still issuing shares like it's going out of style. Why, why are we doing this? Um, but yeah, I think this is a pretty, a pretty exciting look in business, and I, and I actually agree with Brian stuff. I think Microsoft could acquire this one. I think it goes really well with Microsoft kind of uh, products. Um, essentially, making a macro for anything outside of mm-hmm. Excel is a really good thing, and Microsoft has a hell of a lot of products that this could, um, you know, this could apply to. So I think this is a really interesting looking outfit. I just think that I would like to see that stock based comp come down a little bit, but everything else in that balance sheet is is looking pretty good. Yeah, you mentioned, and I agree with you, the way I think about these things, right, so UiPath is early in its profitability days, and um, one of the things that I think is a good innovation Brian Feroli's come up with, or perhaps with Brian Stoffel, is the thing about using different metrics to measure things in different phases. It's a little bit uh, blocky from what I can tell, and the companies don't always fit sort of neatly into one category or another, but nonetheless, looking at different metrics for different companies is a, is a good idea. With a company like this, I expect it to be growing and I expect it to be moving towards profitability based on where it is. So like you, I'm surprised to see its op margin, I think you said, coming inwards rather than going outwards. You sort of think that as they push on, eventually these margins expand and expand and expand, and then they reach their kind of final uh, point where they, they may move a little bit up or down each year because margins on stuff do. But I was surprised to see that coming down by... Uh, Quite a bit, you said. It went from sort of 20-ish to closer to 10, I think. Is that what you said? It did, yeah. Now, it is a worrying fall because that's an adjusted op margin as well. So that's mm. not just a that's not just a margin fall. This is something that they're actually trying to make prettier by taking out uh, the one-time problems. Random so, one-off things, yeah. Yeah, so it is, it is a bit of an issue to see it coming down uh, like that. But again, a positive adjusted margin in this kind of company's life cycle, I think that's a fairly positive thing. Uh, I don't think there's really anything that we can you know really be upset about here. 
Fair enough. Um, so Matt was uh, and Peter Pepper uh, were wanting us to talk about this one. Obviously, last week wasn't Matt's favourite episode. This week will be, right? Um, or, or maybe next week, or, or the one after, or the one after. Who knows? But we're getting better as we go along. It was maybe. Sammy and Matt. Peter Pepper oh, was Sammy and Matt, a different sorry. one, yeah. Oh, whoops. Peter Pepper was, what was he asking about? He's got a good name. I liked his name. He wanted us to do affiliate links. Ah, that was it. Yeah, that was the affiliate links thing. Um, okay, cool. Well, next time be called Peter Pepper, because everyone should be, uh, at least in my view anyway. Should we talk about a different thing then, Steve? Here's the thing that I was keen to talk about, because um, we talked last week about the FTSE 100's ups and downs, ins and outs, and reshufflings, and I have a, a an eye on these things that probably more than I ought to. The S&P 500 is also rebalancing, and two go out and two come in. Uh, in comes Blackstone and um, Airbnb, which we'll talk about in a second. And out goes, uh, I think, something called Lincoln National, which I think is probably a bank, and a thing called Newell Brands. Um, it's a difficult quiz question to get started. Steve, can you name what any of Newell's brands are? I, I couldn't. No, I was just you've about to Google one, that. But yeah, you've heard of one, I think, but um, I don't know as there'll be many more. Sharpie is the one you've probably heard of. All right, of. okay. Um, yeah, so there goes um, Sharpies, which in some ways has the hallmarks of a decent brand, right? People talk about them as an object. Uh, they said you got a Sharpie or... Uh, or that was written on there with some sort of shark with a sharpie, uh, etc. But nonetheless, out of the S and P 500 goes Newell's brand, singular, uh, and in comes Blackstone and Airbnb. Uh, and Airbnb has had a little run uh, just this week as a result of that announcement. It's up nine or so percent. Um, 18th of September, so uh, about a week from now is when people, um, when it becomes a part of the S and P officially, and all the kind of passive fund managers or algos or bots or whatever will go off and buy some percentage of their portfolio in airbnb regardless of what price they do not care if it's at six dollars or six hundred dollars they go away and buy i don't know maybe point something percent of their portfolio in airbnb and then they are not outperforming or underperforming their index they just are their index um as far as i can tell based on its market cap right now and obviously there's time for this to change it's going to go in at around number 87, which is actually it's actually quite high, uh, considering. I mean, the last kind of big profile S&P 500 edition was Tesla, which went in at, I think, six, which is extremely high. But normally when stuff joins the S&P, it joins in the, somewhere in the 400 and somethings, basically, because um, it tends to be the case that it's profitable, but it's just worked its market cap up. With Airbnb and indeed with Tesla, they've both kind of worked their um, market cap up and then started meeting the kind of profitability condition that involves that is required for, for coming in here. But yeah, 87, that brings it in just above Gilead Sciences and just below Mondelez. Uh, so, so big uh, in this kind of case. Um, Steve, you're a, an Airbnb owner, um, or at least the stock anyway, not the, um, the objects themselves. Uh, this has been good for you then. Are you looking to well, do you see any kind of buying opportunity on the horizon? I might. I'm not sure. I, I do and I don't, Steve. It's one of those ones that I keep looking at and I think, well, if this carries on like it is, it's going to look pretty cheap in a few years' time. But you also think to yourself, you, you know, you're looking at the New York City uh, ban on on Airbnb and thinking to yourself, well, this this probably makes a, a bit of a difference to uh, to future growth. Now, I, I have looked a little bit more in depth, and, and New York only makes up about 1% of Airbnb's revenue, and it isn't a total ban. 
it's just a ban on people who buy a property and then rent it out through Airbnb all the time. The actual original intention of Airbnb of staying with a host uh, in in uh, New York is still actually allowed. So it's yeah. not going to be a complete removal of, uh, of properties on, on Airbnb. So uh, I don't think that's something, I think it's something that's probably been um, meteorized to the uh, to to the nth degree but there's a lot of people on twitter steve who really 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 dislike airbnb and really want it to fail and the the, the sort of doom and gloomers um let's let's say uh robert kia crashy he thinks that uh, airbnb is about to lead the next crash somehow now i mean he's worse than a broken clock steve because i don't think he's been right twice ever but um <laughs> He uh, he think he tweeted the other day Airbnb to lead the real uh, real estate sector crash in the US, and you just think to yourself like where the hell does he? Do you know what I mean? Honestly, he must just dream stuff, wake up and tweet out. I mean, let alone his book being one of the biggest lies known to man. Um, he's also uh, just awful, awful market predictor. So uh, I don't know, Steve. There's just a lot of people out there who have his kind of. Um, mindset and i think it's probably because they got charged a cleaning fee once yeah so in the case of kiyosaki you're right he is uh, he is wrong about so much stuff he might as well change his name to steve and come on our show with us but um i was thinking of airbnb i'm expecting a kind of run going into this i guess the question i should have asked you probably more is um are you tempted to flog your shares to some fund manager who doesn't have a choice but to buy them uh, when September 18 comes around? Because you have an obvious forced buyer event. You'll see lots of activity around there of people thinking, well, look, people have to buy it that day. Uh, ordinary times, the market does what it likes and doesn't do what it likes, but people have to buy it now because they are committed to being an S&P tracking thing. They must track the S&P. They don't really care if they overpay for it, to be honest. Their only goal is to try and match up to the S&P in this uh, kind of thing. So are you tempted to be a a seller to someone who has no choice but to buy it off you at whatever price it is the market's offering? Not yet, Steve. I've I've already sold Airbnb once before. So I'll just have a quick look Mm. at my history here. So the last time I sold it, I sold it at uh, 106.118.121. and one two one again one two zero point nine four, and I sold it in September. Uh, well, throughout September and a little bit of August because it had ran up quite a lot since I bought it, so I made profit on all of those sales by quite quite a large amount. I started buying it back again in December, so I bought it in December the ninth, fourteenth, nineteenth, and twenty second. So I've got an average price on Airbnb, Steve, of eighty nine dollars. It's one four five eighty five at the moment, so I'm up fifty nine point five seven percent when you fa- when you factor in FX. So I'm up a lot on this stock. I could mm-hmm. sell it now and make a really really healthy profit on it, but I think I'm in that mentality at the moment, Steve, where I'm just gonna I'm just gonna sit on it uh, and, and let it play out because it's a long way for it to fall back down. I don't think. Um, I mean, it's hard it's hard to know how the economy is going to go, but I don't think we get that uh, gain wiped out entirely. And if it does, Steve, I'm not sure I'm going to want to be a seller at that price anyway. I'll probably want to be a buyer. So I'm all right sitting on it where I am at the moment. I think it goes higher, but I'm not confident enough to buy it. Uh, If it goes lower, then I'll just buy more. I think that's probably where I am at the moment. I think it goes higher from here into its inclusion event in a week or so, because I'll be buying ahead of force buying. I think after that, I would expect this to do not a lot or pull back a bit because I think this thing getting bid up will then result in it being probably overpriced. 
uh, to be honest. And it's currently on, I think, a PE of around 40 or so, which is it's a growing company. It's clearly achieving its kind of uh, scale and ambitions, aside from the fact of New York banning but not banning it. Uh, other cities, by the way, that have banned but not banned Airbnb include Barcelona, Portugal and Oxford, where I live. Uh, the last one is where I live. Not all three of those is where I live. Um, but they uh, have either banned it or reversed that ban or the ban turns out to not really be a ban. Uh, and so on and so forth. So I think there's a lot of noise there. But I am thinking that once this gets to its inclusion point, I would expect to see it come down again, not immediately, but gradually over time, because I think it will start to look expensive. To an extent, this is what happened with Tesla in 2020 when the company had a, a bit of an iffy run. There was enormous kind of uh, buying going on going into its um, inclusion event. Then they tried, of course, another sort of stock split uh, thing to try and distract everybody, which usually works quite well, to be honest, the company. The price starts going up for no reason whatsoever other than uh, more anticipation of buyers and so on. Um, I wonder whether Airbnb will start to look expensive after this and whether it might overcorrect, which is why I'm just seeing the S&P inclusion thing as, as worth noting. Um, everybody seems to begin by saying this makes no fundamental difference to the company. That's not true. Um, Airbnb has been buying back shares. If it does get bulled higher as a result of being in a, uh, the S&P, it becomes much tougher for them to buy back their shares. So the returns get lower on a buyback basis. And the case for paying a dividend rather than um, a buyback improves. It means they're in a better position to go and use their stock to acquire stuff on the other side, uh, if they wanted to acquire stuff. But I think the reason they're doing buybacks is because they don't uh, really have anything they particularly want to acquire or raise cash to do. So I think it does make a, a fundamental difference. It might be a small one, but it, it dilutes the value of their buyback. I'm expecting this stock to either tread water or sink a bit after its inclusion event when it starts to look expensive to people and they start jumping ship one or two bad earnings calls. And I think there might be a buying opportunity here. Yeah, they, I mean, they're definitely builders, not buyers. So when they've got mm. this huge, and they do generate a lot of cash, it's it's hard to deny um, just how much they generate. And they've got a lot of cash on the balance sheet as well. So they, at some point, they're going to have to do something with it. Now, uh, in 20 years' time, Steve, we might look at these buybacks and say, you know, with real fondness and say, hell, you know, we, we, we just didn't see that they were just going to continue to grow at 15 to 20% for 20 years. That was incredible that they were buying back stock back then. So it's uh, it's interesting for me. I, I don't really have a, a, a firm view on what I should do, which I think is probably doesn't make good podcasting material. I think it's, yeah, I don't have a firm view, but I have a special reason for thinking that I want to keep my eye on this. That inclusion event will happen, and then I wonder what happens to the share price after that. So I'm kind of, I'm looking at this carefully because it's a company I would very much like to have in my portfolio. At the moment, it doesn't beat out stuff that's currently in there, most of which is looking quite cheap, uh, to be honest, right now. And um even with um, China not banning iPhones at the moment, I'm still not thinking Apple's quite in range either. Anyway, uh, last one. DocuSign? DocuSign. Okay, so um, DocuSign, for those who don't know, it's a signing documents company. Uh, basically, you do it online rather than having to you know, email it to yourself at work, print it, sign it, scan it back in, and email it back to yourself. Uh, and, and I guess it's... One of those companies which is funny what folks will do for convenience, Steve. But would you believe this one has about two and a half billion in revenue at the moment every year? Mm-hmm. So uh, lots of growth pulled forward over COVID, as you would imagine. Um, valuation down huge since then. I think it was uh, 
from $280 to about $50. That's a touch over about $10 billion in valuation now. It's got tough comps from the likes of Adobe, uh, who've got their own competitor product. Uh, let's see how it got on. So revenue came in at $688 million. That's up about 11% year on year. $667 million was expected, so it's a pretty handy beat. 99% of this revenue is recurring in nature. Billings was up 10% to $711 million. Op income was up 52% to $170 million. Adjusted EPS was about $0.72, cents, again, beating expectations handily. Actual EPSD was about $0.04, cents, so a massive difference <laughs> between the two. Uh, guidance was also updated, Steve. They saw uh, third quarter revenue, $687 million to $691 million. Um, analysts wanted 685 so it's it's beating even on the bottom. The midpoint's quite quite far in front. Um, and they reckon full-year revenue, $2.73 billion to $2.74 billion. Um, and they did see $2.71 billion to $2.73 billion. So that's quite a, quite a decent little uplift, Steve. We're running out of time, so this is a great little acquisition candidate here. Steve, why hasn't Salesforce into it, Microsoft, or someone bought it yet? Salesforce like buying this kind of thing, don't they? Um, you said it's strange what people will do for convenience. I was looking at DocuSign uh, a little bit the other day. It's not really a product I use very much. I've used it once, I think, to sign a lease agreement for a house I was um, renting, but now I kind of e-sign or digital sign at least when I get the choice about it, most of my stuff through Adobe. Uh, I have a signature that I drag and I drop and there it goes. Um, I Looking at this, though, it is much more of a kind of ecosystem they have going on here. They have capacity to like drag and drop standard clauses into um, contracts and so on. I'm not sure how difficult this is to, uh, to replicate particularly, but the 99% recurring revenue indicates that people don't kind of leave uh, very much or they kind of hold fast pretty well and keep generating the same cash off of people. Um, I kind of like this as a an organization. I feel like this is one that people, mostly in virtue of its name, tend to underestimate uh, quite a bit. They tend to think, oh, okay, it's just signing things. Um, and there was a really good Twitter thread from oh, years ago now uh, that I think you showed me that explained quite why there is a lot more going on than just, hey, look, you can click here and sign something uh, with DocuSign. Yeah, it does a little bit more than that. Um, and it could also collect payments and things like that, uh, which are, are quite uh, quite interesting. But I, I used, um, I think I've used DocuSign a few times now. We used it when we moved house, which uh, was quite impressive. I wasn't expecting that. Um, uh, we've used it with um, with some NHS treatment as well. And I've used it with Trading 2 and 2 for something as well fairly recently. So um, it does have quite wide coverage. The thing I think about competition in this area is like, how how can you make it better? Who's going to make it better? So they've got to make it cheaper. And if they can, you know, if you've got your whole system built into DocuSign, you know, you've got all your contracts uploaded and what have you, rebuilding them all again in something like Adobe Sign, if it's just a dollar cheaper or something like that, I don't reckon people are going to go for that, Steve. So I think it's kind of got a weird convenience moat in that, People aren't going to want to sell it much cheaper because I think it's something stupid like $8 a month for, for just, you know, per seat who, who use it. And you're not going to have everyone in your organization using it. So nobody's going to want to go much cheaper than that. And nobody's going to want to build something to go much cheaper than that. And if the stuff's already in it and the competing company isn't much cheaper, then why would you want to switch? I just, I think it's just got a moat of convenience. I think it's like too cheap and probably sticky enough to keep people there at 10 billion valuation steve and about 2.8 billion in revenue 
you would expect a software company to churn out a decent chunk of free cash flow from something like this in the future when when DocuSign. Um, and I can't believe they're paying out quite quite a decent chunk of stock based company. That's one of the things that does trouble me on on a company like this. I, I have that feeling in my head, and I don't want to put people down here, but how difficult is it to do? Do you need the best techs in the world to work at DocuSign? I'm sure you don't. Um, I feel like I could do it. I feel like I could just spend like two or three days at at college and, 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 you know, figure out how to keep something like DocuSign running. I don't know, Steve. Uh, maybe I'm underselling it. Maybe somebody in the comment section will, will hit out us and say that this is, you know, t- technologically sound company, uh, which I suppose it has to be. But, um, yeah, I don't know, Steve. I, I think it looks quite attractive here to me. I don't own it. I'm tempted by it a little bit. Um, the, one of the things that puts me off, do you know who does own it? Is it Kiyosaki? Uh, no, no, it's not. Well, maybe, but I don't know. That's not what I'm thinking of. Go on, uh, then. Uh, what kind of a company is DocuSign, Steve? Uh, like a SaaS company? Yeah, pretty much. It's a smallish one. Um, it doesn't make very much money at the moment. Who likes these companies? Well, I'm going to go with Charlie Munger. <laughs> <laughs> you are very close. It is, in fact, Charlie Munger's also a year, Kathy Wood. Um, um, and I, this dawned on me when you mentioned the uh, stock-based comp um thing uh stock-based comp thing i was watching a video again from wall street millennial actually i'm pretty sure on this one of a kind of mm, you can call it a hit piece on kathy wood if you like i mean it's not particularly uh it's not particularly mean uh it talks about things to do with her methodology and one of the things one of the reasons that kathy Wood likes these companies is because when she tries to or her and her, her team try to look at how they might look going forward what they do is take things like stock-based comp and attempt to normalize them down as a percentage of revenues to the average for the NASDAQ or something. So the kind of stock-based comp that's worrying you doesn't worry her because she tends to think, uh, well, this stuff will normalize over time or something like that, and then start adjusting margins to the average for the NASDAQ and so on, uh, and then start making absurd claims about them being kind of profitable when they're when they're not but um if you kind of go these are the sorts of adjustments that kind of come in here a little bit i i'm not sure i can see my way to adjusting away that much stock-based comp uh to be honest with you i feel like um it will take time for these things to normalize and that is time with interest rates at um whatever they are five and a bit percent and probably going higher in the uk that's time i'm not sure i have uh right now i get that's playing right into her sort of argument people who look for Short-term wins here will miss long-term opportunities. Um, but I'm not sure I see there's an opportunity quite in sitting around for five years doing nothing and then trying to catch up to a, a 5% return. But uh, there we are. Interested um, in the buyback, Steve? There's another 500 million buyback going here. Um, yeah, I saw that. Which it, is... It is, a, it is a decent lump on uh, 10 billion of... Uh, a market cap, isn't it? It, it is. It's the same uh, same as uh, UI path, really. Here, isn't it? So um, yeah, and it amounts to buying them back when they're low, right? It's not. It's it's within the memory of this podcast for a time when DocuSign was three hundred ish dollars. It's now fifty ish dollars. That's it's quite the fall. It's not Synthoma like, but it's it's not right. <laughs> yeah, I mean they're doing about one hundred and forty five million in um, in in stock based comps, so it's not. You know, you're still going to end up being diluted by around a hundred million, which is about one percent, isn't it? So it's not. Yep. It's not a. It's so not a huge. You get to three and a half, four percent return rather than five percent return on a five hundred million uh, buyback. Is that over the year, as far as you can tell? 
that's yeah, well, it's about 145 million a quarter they're doing. 500 million yeah. is the and again that that tells you that if they buy back 500 million in a year, this is just an authorization to do so. So uh, we shall see whether they actually do that. Yeah, um, hard to see that they won't. I think with their share price where it is at the moment, uh, they'd be stupid not to. Yeah, they would yeah. be stupid not I'm to. Not sure what better opportunity is going to come around for uh, DocuSign there, but interesting stuff. Um, hmm. Shall we call it a week there, Steve? Let's do it. Cool. Well, that was our show. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back same time next week with yet more interesting things about how the cricket's gone and how the stock market's gone. See you then. Bye for now.